It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. I take full responsibility for everything this government has been doing in tackling coronavirus, and I'm very proud of our record. Tens of thousands of our citizens have died avoidably. These were unnecessary deaths because of systematic government misconduct. With good British common sense, we will continue to defeat this virus and take this country forward. There were a lot of green shoots of opportunity on the horizon. You know, we've been held down on the forest floor for far too long, and we will reach that canopy again. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Sebastian Salik. And a very good afternoon. I'm Roger Hearing. Now, the House of Lords has rejected government plans to break international law over Brexit, as Baroness Helena Kennedy predicted on this very programme yesterday. The senior Conservative Lord Clark was amongst the peers who voted to remove the most controversial parts of the Internal Market Bill. It's not only immoral as a piece of legislation, it's intrinsically ridiculous and deeply damaging to the reputation of this country. But Boris Johnson is refusing to back down, promising that they will put the clauses back in and push ahead with the new law. So there we go. We are ping-pong, a go-go, all those parliamentary mechanisms coming into play. Meanwhile, the Chancellor, Rishi Sunak, trying to offer some last-minute clarity to the financial services industry before the Brexit transition period ends. He announced a series of unilateral decisions designed to ease US firms' access to UK financial markets after 2020. These include so-called equivalence decisions in areas like capital demands and EU auditing standards. Very, very important stuff if you are a bank who wants to carry on doing business with the continent after Brexit. And we should make sure it's EU, not US firms. Well, mind you, they'd probably be very welcome as well, but uh, that's all up for grabs, of course, after what happened in Washington over the weekend. But anyway, let's bring in Alistair Carmichael, Lib Dem MP and spokesperson for Home Affairs and Northern Ireland. Welcome to the programme, Alistair. Thanks for being with us. Um, Let me ask you about what went on in the House of Lords, because in the end, the House of Commons is going to put the clauses back into this bill. They'll send it back. It is ping-pong. And isn't it all in the end rather pointless? Well, let's just wait and see, shall we? Because, uh, you know, that would have been my expectation up until the point I heard Boris Johnson saying that he was never going to change his mind on it. Because when you hear Boris Johnson saying that he's set in his course and that there is no going back, you know you're never very far these days from a U-turn. You know, don't just take my word for it. You can ask Marcus Rashford in the the, the campaign and preschool meals is a good example of that. Um, Remember also, though, that we're at a moment where, to sort of revive an old cliche for a second, the tectonic plates in world politics are beginning to move again. And, uh, you know, there are good reasons now why Boris Johnson might want just quietly to forget that the Internal Market Bill was ever started. It's only ever going to be 
a, a, a hurdle that he will have to overcome when he is trying to build a relationship, which isn't going to be an easy relationship with the Biden administration. So actually, you know, maybe you have a ping pong or two, uh, at which point it might suit Boris Johnson's purposes to sort of throw up his hands and say, oh, this is just dreadful, it's impossible, I'm going to have to live with it anyway. And he, in that way, is able to get rid of something that he is not now actually that keen on keeping. Let me just say, though, parenthetically, the danger with the internal markets bill is that you take out the stuff that you heard Ken Clark talking about there, the immoral, damaging and ridiculous stuff. And actually what you're left with is still a pretty poor piece of legislation because the internal market bill is supposed to regulate the internal UK market and the way in which the government is still going about that is going to put stresses on our own internal constitution in particular between Scotland and the rest of the UK. Well, Alistair, I mean, the government argument is that it avoids damaging the Good Friday Agreement. Is is that something you recognise in any form? If they wanted to avoid damaging the Good Friday Agreement, then probably the sensible thing for them to have done would be to have entered a withdrawal agreement last year which didn't damage the Good Friday Agreement. You know, the, 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 the whole root of the problem here is that the government are trying to uh, ride two horses at once. On the one hand, they're trying to keep their international obligations with regard to the Good Friday Agreement, but at the same time, they're trying to produce, uh, follow their own Brexit nationalist agenda about taking back control and having sovereignty of, of our own borders. Now, you, they took us for that reason out of the customs union. And that, were, you know, that was the only way they could keep their own internal party unity. But once you came out of the customs union, you had to have a border somewhere. The border was either going to be between the north and south of Ireland or else it would be down the Irish Sea. Theresa May was prepared to say that as a backstop, we could stay as a whole country in the customs union. And that, of course, was ultimately... Uh, what uh, Boris Johnson uh, stuck pins in her for, for for several months and eventually took over the job. So the roots of, of the difficulty with regard to the Good Friday Agreement uh, is not to, are not to be found in the Internal Markets Bill. They are in the Withdrawal Agreement that Boris Johnson quite willingly entered into and indeed won a majority in the House of Commons, describing it as an oven-ready deal. But in the end, if a deal is done, and we are moving towards a deadline now, the 15th of November, this will all be ignored effectively anyway. So do you think a deal is coming down the line or not? Well, I I suspect that there is some sort of deal that we will get. It may actually be a deal that says we just leave things much the way they are and we'll try and fix it in a few years' time, which, again, is not the sort of deal that the Tory bank ventures and the hardline Brexiteers of the government party actually want to have. But you see this time and again. The rhetoric of Brexit is does not actually then meet the reality when you see that. And just, you know, your own uh, introduction there, you were talking about equivalence decisions for, coming from uh, Richie Sunak in relation to the financial services industry. You know, it's a, it's a nice uh, technocratic way of dressing up a fairly simple message, and it is 
that we will continue to obey rules that are made in Brussels for the benefit of the European Union. But the only difference that there will be after the 31st of December is that we are no longer in the room when these decisions are made. And incidentally, on things like financial services regulation, it was usually Britain that was leading the way and the other 27 were very often the ones that were following. Okay, that's Brexit. Got to ask you about the virus as well. I mean, we had that big Mm -hmm. news yesterday that there's been a breakthrough in one of the the vaccine treatments. How confident are you then about the government's logistical ability to roll this out? Because that is going to be a real test. Well, uh, you know, I have to hope that they get it right this time. Um, My concern is that because of the way this government does business, their default in going to the big public procurement companies to roll these things out instead of relying on other arms like uh, local government, local health boards and the rest of it, that we are, you know, we, we could run into difficulty. If they're prepared to learn from their past mistakes and put confidence in the scientists, the public health officials that we've got, then all's well and good. You know, that, that it should work and God, with everything that we have been through in this country with this virus, I very much hope they do. Um, it's it's not going to be quick and it's not going to be easy. Though let's not uh, let's not fool ourselves about this. We're 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 not out the, of the woods yet, and I still think that uh, there needs to be much more attention given to a mass testing program. I think looking back at the last six months. You can all identify different points where we've taken wrong turnings. And I think the biggest mistake we've made was focusing too much on on technological gizmos that we're going to deal with the tracing and and, uh, isolating. Not enough, actually, on the the bread and butter issues like actually tasting at scale. You know, as we've learned more about the virus, the advice that we've had from organisations like the World World Health Organisation has has changed, sometimes significantly, sometimes just at duels. But the one thing that has been constant is that you beat this virus by tasting, tasting, tasting. It seems now only now that we're taking the army into Liverpool to to, uh, execute a a large-scale trial there on tasting, that that's something that the government is beginning to understand better late than never, but we all know what the consequences of that late are. Well, you're obviously highly critical of the government's performance in all this, and one thing I know that Lib Dems have been critical about is about the role of Kate Bingham, who leads the vaccine task force, uh, and was criticised for uh, various speeches and, and, and events she was at virtually on this. But it's it's interesting that Professor John Bell, Regis Professor of Medicine at Oxford, said today in the Financial Times, we've only got the 40 doses of this new vaccine for the UK, specifically because of Kate Bingham. I may have to admit credit where it's due. She did this. Well, if if that's the case, I mean, I hadn't actually uh, heard that analysis from uh, Professor Bill, in which case, you know, she should get credit. But it doesn't actually take away from the fact that she has been uh, responsible for pushing, shall we say, the boundaries of what's acceptable in terms of, of information sharing and that wall between government and private industry and financial interest which is a very important one has looked just a little bit porous uh, on her watch and uh, you know it, it, 
nobody ever does everything wrong. So yes, they should get credit for the stuff that they've they've done right. But I'm not entirely sure uh, that the the, uh, the things for which she has been criticised would necessarily be the same right. things which now bring us some sort of advantage. But as I say, I've not seen the article, so um, yeah. you have to be blind there. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Right, let's get to the good news, shall we? Yesterday brought a little bit of that, the first we've had in a while in terms of pandemic-related stuff. A vaccine developed by Pfizer and BioNTech was found to prevent 90% of COVID cases in a study. Uh, Boris Johnson was quick to warn that this doesn't necessarily mean the end is near. So what does it mean then for the fight against the virus? Well, now we're going to hear from Gordon Dugan. He's professor at the Department of Medicine at Cambridge University. He's very widely regarded uh, in this field, one of the most influential people writing, con- researching about vaccines. He's contributed to the development of vaccines for whooping cough, cholera, typhoid, among others. Professor Dugan, great to have you with us. Um, how encouraged are you then by this news, the study coming out better than some expected? Yeah, I think we're hearing a collective sigh of relief from politicians, economists, healthcare people and the general public that we've got the first sign that a vaccine might work, but also the vaccine might work very well. It's early days, but these are very encouraging signals. And I suppose the point, though, in all this, Professor, is, is this concern about the fact that it is early stage. Yes, the signs are good, but um, medical specialists I've spoken to, and I'm sure you have to, say, well, it's a small group, it's over a short time, we need many more months to know. I mean, all these things are going to undermine confidence in this, aren't they? Well, I think they are, but you've got to remember this is the first time in history that the general public has been so interested in the development of a vaccine. Also, we've got several more vaccines of different types coming along, and we'll hear news of those vaccines in the next days and weeks. So it is an unusual experience, but I can tell you now from my experience in the field, it's very encouraging in the sense that we've got an early sign of efficacy, because often we get early signs of very poor efficacy. What about the different demographics? I mean, we know how coronavirus impacts people of different ages and different races differently. Um, How much do we know about this vaccine and whether it's a catch-all or whether it might only be effective for certain strata of society? Well, I think this is uh, the the Pfizer vaccine is known as is a new vaccine against coronavirus. It's a new type of vaccine. So we actually know very little really about how it would affect demography in terms of the, the the types of people it might protect either in age or vulnerability. We know a little bit more about some of the other vaccines coming through. And what we'll have to do is really collect that data as we go along. But when you've got a vaccine that is giving you such a positive signal, it gives you more encouragement that it might work in some of these other more challenging groups of people.
in this situation, I mean, I suppose what everyone's most interested, apart from the fact whether it works, is how long it will take to give it to people, because that is a, a huge logistical challenge. I mean, it was, uh, I think, Professor Sir John Bell who was saying that life could be back to normal in this country by the spring if it can be rolled out in that time. Do, do you take that view as well? Yes, yeah, so this is an area I've specialised in, so I've been interested in how to get vaccines into the most difficult areas in low- and middle-income countries, and it's a challenge. But what we will be having in the background is uh, the different types of vaccines, so we'll be trying to build up capacity in the anticipation of the rollout. So each vaccine will have a different rollout schedule, either where the vaccine's made in terms of manufacturing, how it might be distributed. We know the Pfizer vaccine requires deep freezing, which is a real challenge. So each vaccine will have a, a different schedule. We've hedge-vetted by going after different vaccines. So we'll learn much more about this in the, the next uh, few weeks. And, and what does that transition to normal look like? I mean, it's a discussion I have a lot outside of work. We've heard from the government that they're looking at this uh, essentially hierarchy of people who get it. But is it the case that one by one we all go in and get a vaccine and then slowly things start to open up? I presume it's not going to be a one day we'll wake up and everything's fine. No, but I think it's, uh, if you think about it, uh, you know, if, you, if you're going to on, on a trip in a, an aeroplane and you're surrounded by people you think you might get the disease from or you, or you might transmit the disease, if you're vaccinated, first of all, you might have the confidence that you'd be protected and other people are protected, but also you have the confidence that you may not transmit the disease onto others. And so what will happen is they'll start to uh, target uh, healthcare workers, vulnerable groups, and gradually they'll try and roll it out as quickly and safely as they can to different demographic groups, different types of people, so they get to the general public. But it's going to be done at pace, and it's not been done at this pace previously. If you get an epidemic, for example, I've been involved in cholera epidemics, uh, you, you can roll out vaccines even in the most trying conditions well, provided you've got the infrastructure and the support to do that. Well, let's pick up on that point, because one of the things been phrases been used to me is uh, vaccine poverty, that actually what will happen is that the rich countries who have these well-established health infrastructures will get this vaccine first. Maybe they'll actually take up almost all the effort and poorer countries, less developed countries will simply be left out. Do you think that's a risk? It's, it's, it's not only a risk, it's probably a likelihood. And, and in the history of vaccination, it's taken us a long time. World Health Organization being very influenced to roll vaccines out across the, the more challenging areas of low-middle-income countries. But I guess uh, you know we we can anticipate that looking from the UK or US or perspective that the vaccine will get out quickly. It will get out into Europe, and then gradually, as you get manufacturing capacity building up, it will it will reach out into other areas and the organisations like Gavi, which is especially set up to try to get vaccines into these low, middle-income countries. And another organisation that's been formed is COVAX. So people are trying to address this. It'll take time. What about the, the anti-vaxxer movement? How big a threat is that to this being effective? Because surely a vaccine can only work if a certain number of people in any given area have it administered. Well, I think this is a great timing in the sense that for the first time, the general public will be able to see the rollout of a vaccine and the actual impact of a vaccine, because normally we're vaccinated, you prevent the disease and you never see the impact. So there's an opportunity, really, for society to learn from this and see whether or not it influences opinion. Now, I don't think anybody's talking about making vaccine compulsory. 
so you will have the choice of whether to take it or not. One caveat on that is that you may need a certification. For example, if you go to some countries where the yellow fever is present, you have to have a certification to allow you into that country that you've been vaccinated. Whether that will happen in certain countries, we'll just have to wait and see. But we do know from things like yellow fever and, and other vaccinations in the rest of the world that there is resistance or resistance can appear. And, and for example, uh, with regard to, to, to diseases like smallpox, they've been pushed away and then somehow come back because of opposition to it. So it isn't necessarily a done deal once the vaccine's there, is it? No, it's, it's, a, it's a battle in society. It's a battle of people who believe in vaccines and those who don't. And it's a battle which, it, even when the very first vaccines were developed by Pasteur and uh, Jenner, there was, there was always an anti-vaccine uh, feeling in society, and it's probably quite a natural response. And we just have to see how that is managed, managed and how it manifests itself in the next few weeks. Certainly people who are exposed to heavy doses of the virus, like healthcare workers, I'm sure will be much more likely to take the vaccine. So very briefly, you'd be happy to take this vaccine when it's made available? Yes, you know, I w- obviously I know a lot more about the details uh, and I will take the vaccine or a vaccine, depending on which one comes through first. But I do recommend that people think this through. I recommend that they look at the information, do their own risk assessment and then uh, decide whether or not they want to be vaccinated and listen very carefully to the safety data that comes through. Yeah. The good news is it looks like the vaccine is going to work and it looks like it probably is going to work well. If it was a vaccine we weren't so sure about, then there would be a different level it's... of debate. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.